Welcome to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. This week we sit down with Dave Messersmith. Dave's career at the ranch spans four decades. He started out as a bartender, then was hired on as the tennis pro, where he continues to hold court serving guests and homeowners. Dave has lots to talk about, so let's not keep him waiting. Hi, Dave. How are you, Susie? Great. <laughs> let's start with a little bit about your background and yeah. what brought you to the ranch. Well, it was kind of interesting. I'm a seasonal worker, and I needed a winter job. I had a great summer job. I landed the head pro position at the Wequasset Resort and Golf Club. It was not a five-star when I arrived there in 1981, but it became a Forbes five-star property over the course of the next 10 years. I got that job, and... I was thinking, well, we close in November, so what am I going to do from November to May when I have to return? So I got a gig in the Bay Area of San Francisco through my brothers who were living out there. So I went down to the club, and to uh, make a long story short, because it will get long if I keep talking, uh, I, I got the job there, but the problem was the weather was too cold. And it was raining a lot. In those days, it rained a lot in the Bay Area. So I'd have a bunch of lessons that day, and it would rain. And we had no indoor facility. So after doing that for two years, and driving, by the way, on Interstate 80, 3,000 miles out there. But I was with my brothers, and uh, it was a great area to be around, San Francisco. And uh, my friend out there, Greg Stone... His father owned the Lighthouse Inn on Cape Cod, and he was on the same motel-hotel board as Rusty. And Greg's father's name was Bob Stone, and Bob Stone had said to Rusty, if, uh, if there are any openings, my son would like a managerial position at your resort, your seasonal resort. So if anything comes up, give me a call. So wouldn't you know, the head bartender died, Frank. So after Rusty, you know, paid his respects and everything, it wasn't shortly after that he got on the phone and called Bob Stone. I have a position open for your son Greg if he's interested. It's the uh, head bartender or really manager. He can manage the bar here, but he needs to get here quick. I need a manager. And this was February of 1982. So Greg said, Dave, good news for me. I'm giving up my job at Charlie Brown's restaurant in the Bay Area. I'm going to Rancho de los Caballeros in Wickenburg, Arizona. I said, Arizona, huh? That's where the sun shines and it's warm all winter. And I had worked with Greg. I worked at the Lighthouse in 14 years, so I knew the entire family. So, you know, I had the resume from Greg. So Greg took the job and got down there, and I said, Greg, I'll do anything. I'll wash dishes, I'll bartend, any kind of position like that. Of course, I prefer to work in the bar. I'm a professional bartender and waiter, so I know how to do all that stuff. So Greg got down there, and he he really liked it a lot. I would say it was no more than a week. And he called me, he said, he used to call me Mesh. He said, Mesh, I got an opening for you if you want it. I said, yeah, what is it? He says, I need a bartender. 
when can you be down here? I said, tomorrow. <laughs> so I jumped on a plane and uh, left my car up there in Walnut Creek, California. And I, I, uh, I remember arriving at the ranch. It was like 5 o'clock. They picked me up, came up with a few house guests, walked into the bar, and there was Greg. And there were people mingling about, people drinking. I could, I could you know, look around and say, this looks like a nice bar. You know, and the resort was lovely when I came in there. Where was this? 1982, February 17th. It was a Saturday. So I said, okay, Greg, place looks great. I can't wait to get started. When do I start? And he threw a shirt at me. Uh, You're on. (laughs) So that was my introduction. And I worked that night. What was the saloon like back then? Uh, Well, the bar faced the pool. It was not like it is today. It was a tacky little bar. And I was told in the old days, I don't think they had a liquor license to sell liquor. So people, guests, would leave their liquor in a little locker. You've heard the story probably. And they would come in there and have their cocktail hour. And uh, these were mostly, you know, older people, I'd say, in February. And then the spring break would come in in March that say, whoa, there were a lot of older women here in their 80s and 90s, and boy, could they throw down the liquor. And they would stay at the ranch four to six weeks. They'd have their room, and they didn't want to be alone. You know, their husbands had maybe passed away, and all their friends were going to the ranch. Mostly January, February uh, was a much older clientele, and we only had 59 rooms then. We have 79 now. So the place was oftentimes pretty full. We were busy in the bar. These people could drink, you know. If they brought their own liquor, what was your Oh, this was at, uh, when I got there, it, it was a bar. We were selling liquor. This was prior to that. I'm going back to maybe, I was told, maybe the early 70s or 60s. But when I got there, no, everything was cash uh, or put on their room. Was there a popular drink? Well, the Lost Cab Margarita. And what made that came, so? Joe came up with that. Well, instead of using cheap tequila, we used a high-grade tequila. And instead of using triple sec, which is a, a cheaper orange liqueur, we used Grand Marnier. Then we had prickly pear margaritas. There, there were other drinks, but you got to understand, most of these people that were there were in their 80s. They drank gin and tonic, scotch, Manhattans, Old Fashions. Jack Daniels. It was pretty straight. They could have two or three. And uh, just to give you a cute story, this is a great line from Ed Matheny, longtime house guest. And uh, we used to give out free drinks from six to seven. It was called the social cocktail hour every Monday night. And boy, uh, none of them missed that because it was free drinks. It was a chance to get back at Rusty. <laughs> So I, I, was, I was a good waiter. I mean, I really took care of people. I was fast, raced up to the bar, got my orders, got the drinks out there, because I know about service. And uh, if you want to make friends in a hurry, give them good service. That, I figured that's my job, too. And I had had 16 years of experience working in uh, an Irish pub, a very busy Irish pub on Cape Cod. And uh, if your drinks were late, you heard it. You heard about it. Um, anyway, I had good, good training. So anyway, Ed Matheny and the family, they, they'd like to sit together 
a lot of the people that knew each other. They get these long tables and chairs all sit together. And uh, I went up to Ed and I said, Ed, it's five minutes of, you got five minutes left. He's already had two glasses of wine. And he said, Dave, I'll, I'll have that third glass of wine. I said, good, Ed. Uh, he said, you know, this is something, Dave, this social drinking hour is, it's a race against time. <laughs> and he, I just laughed. And I remember getting another client in the bar. He was, I, I forget the family he was with, but there were four or five families around. And very often when I'd go back and get their second order or their third order, they would all jump in. I'll have one too. I'll have one too. Well, one of the guys at the table, a re- really funny man, he didn't order one, but I brought him one anyway. And uh, I put it down in front of him. He said, Jesus, uh, Dave, you're, you're good. I, I didn't even order this. And I said, well, Bob, I have you on an egg timer. And the whole table just exploded. And I looked out of the corner. It was rusty over there, just going like this. That Messerschmitt, you know. <laughs> How long were you a bartender? Uh, 25 years. So I did both jobs. I was offered the tennis pro job. First year I got there, Rusty found out I was a tennis pro. And he called me into the office after he got to know me and, and saw I was a good worker, that I was loved being around people. He said, Dave, I, you know, I can tell you worked for Bob Stone 14 years. You, you know your stuff, you know. So I said, well, I like it here a lot, Rusty, but I didn't come here to be a bartender. I came to Arizona to get a tennis pro job. So I'm going to be heading down to Scottsdale on my days off and try to procure something for next year when I come out here. And he didn't want to lose me. So he said, Dave, wait a minute. Uh, If I offer you the tennis pro job here next year, would you come back? And I said, well, Rusty, I kind of have my heart set on a real tennis program, a tennis club, where it's solid tennis. Uh, So I said, but thanks for the offer. You know, uh, who knows? So... I left his office and I got back in my room and I remember sitting down and I just kind of going like this, you know, and I saying, hmm, he just offered me a tennis pro job. I can bartend nights. I know I can make a good living here, you know. I know I can sell myself for tennis lessons and I do enjoy working in the bar. I like the place and Rusty's been so good to me. So I walked back into his office. It, 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 wouldn't, it wasn't any more than 10 minutes. Recipe, I'll take you up on that. Good. (laughs) Smartest decision I ever made. That got me 41 years of uh, joy working at the ranch, you know. I've met so many nice people and, you know, money-wise it turned out good. But that wasn't the real reason I was happy. It's nice to make money and to have a successful business. But that that really wasn't my goal. I've always been able to support myself. Tell me about the tennis program. Yeah, I started to get round robins started. And uh, twice a week, we would run afternoon round robins for two hours. And boy, were they coming out for those. So I organized all of that. And off that springboard, I started to get people taking lessons from me. Because that's my strength, I think, working one-on-one with people. And I'm good at what I do, you know, because I put all my energy into it. I don't have any sideshows going on. So 
that turned out to be too successful in a way, because after 25 years of uh, playing Superman, and they had a nickname uh, for me, Super Dave, which was later changed to Super Salad. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> the chef that Barry kept giving me these nicknames, and everybody started calling me these things. <laughs> but I don't, I don't mind. I consider it a, a sort of a tag of love, you know. When you get a nickname, it means people like you. So, prior to you coming on as a tennis pro, did they have a tennis pro? They did, and uh, he was about sixty-five years old, and he sat in a chair all day. I didn't see him ever give many lessons or really start some round robins to get people playing with each other. So he he wasn't really that excited about working that hard. And I did mention to Rusty, I said, Rusty, you already have a tennis pro, Bruce. I don't want to take his job from him. He's a nice guy. Rusty said, well, Dave, if you don't take the job, somebody else will, because I want to get somebody younger in here that has more energy and doesn't sit around all day and read the paper. And that's kind of what he did. And I think Rusty's mother, I got to know her, and she liked me. And I've always been good with older ladies because I grew up with older relatives I adored my aunts and my grandmothers, and so I was around older people a lot, and I really learned a lot from older people, just just listening to their stories, you know. So anyway, I, I ended up taking the job from Rusty. I didn't want to take it from Bruce, but they were going to get somebody new anyway, so why not me? And I saw Bruce later. He'd gotten a good job down in Sun City. And I went up to him and I said, Bruce, I hope you're happy here. I, I didn't take your job from you, Bruce, honestly, you know. And he, he, he said, that, Dave, if you didn't get it, somebody else would anyway. He was very nice about it. And I think by then uh, he just wanted to read the papers anyway and not have to run around a tennis court. But so I've been running continue? around ever since. Did you continue bartending? At I night? did. For 25 years, I, uh, I did the Superman role. I'd get a phone booth, change outfits, zip over to the bar, and work till about 10 o'clock at night, and then get up early the next day, start giving the lessons. So I was, I was going seven days a week, 31 days a month. What do you remember about Edie Gant? Edie was... Uh, quiet, very reserved. There was a certain elegance about her, and um, I, I really enjoyed talking to her because she had this little smile when I'd come to the table. She had a very welcoming little smile, and uh, we had little conversations together. I knew she didn't want to listen to me too much. I have a tendency to talk too much, but uh, <laughs> so I knew when to pull away, you know, but I, I just loved her. She was so good to me and nice to me, she wasn't an outgoing person. Neither's Rusty. He's reserved. He's very easy to get to know Rusty. And I found that with Edie, you know. Uh, and I never heard anybody say a bad word about Edie or Rusty. I mean, Rusty and I, I, uh, I really admired him, you know, because sometimes owners can be tough, you know, very business-oriented. And uh, I just uh, hit it off with him right away. I know that he, he liked to drink a little bit in those days, and he hired a guy, Larry Hyde, who was the assistant manager, actually the general manager. Rusty's the owner. So Larry and Rusty uh, liked to go down to the rancher bar when it was 
really happy. It was the happening place. That's where you went to see the girls and drink and, you know, if you're lucky enough, you might catch a fist, a fist fight too. <laughs> but uh, they needed a ride down there. So sometimes we'd close the bar at 10.30 or 11. They'd be in there and they would get me to drive them down there as the designated driver because they knew I didn't drink. And I was a careful driver. And uh, I liked hanging out with the two of them. They were funny. So I would do that. And in those days, Rusty had a Toyota Supra. So this is a car you're supposed to drive at 80 miles an hour, you know, but not me. I'm going to drive it at 45. So I'd be on uh, Vulture Mine Road heading down to the rancher with two of those silly guys in the back. And uh, hey, Dave, this is a Supra. Get on it, you know. So I'd pick it up to maybe 50, you know. So those were funny days uh, as a designated driver for the owner of the ranch and the general manager. I worked for five general managers and uh, loved them all. They were all good to me, appreciated my work. Uh, They were just friends, you know. When you can get that kind of respect, I think, from your superiors, where they, they don't look at you as an employee. Uh, uh, they don't judge you. They know you're going to work hard. You know They see your work ethic, and they also uh, see how friendly you are with, with everyone. You know? I can remember a night, Susie, where I was tired. I was eight hours on the court. I would come in there, and I'd go up to tables and take an order. As soon as I get back with the tray and put the, oh, Dave, uh, could you get me a straw? To, you know those types of people? But I put a smile on my face. I, yeah, I'll be back. I'll get you two. <laughs> Which did you prefer, tennis or bartending? Tennis is my love, and it's a skill. Yeah, I mean, it's a learned skill. You have to be, yeah, you have to be good at it. You got to work at tennis. I enjoyed working in the bar because the people, and I, I do like to hustle. But uh, the money's better, and it feels like more of a career. You know, how has the tennis program changed over the years? I can tell you this in, in the 80s and 90s, I was on the court about six, seven hours a day with lessons. Those people are all dead now, and the newer generations coming up had changed. They weren't playing so much tennis, they were doing other things, and a lot of it was not exercising, it was a mind generation, they worked with their minds. Now, I got the occasional tennis players, but what really helped me out was they started selling lots around the golf course. So people were buying lots, putting up homes, and guess what? Their kids did play tennis, or they were retired and played tennis. And I would take care of the tennis courts, keep up the maintenance and the upkeep. And so so Rusty was giving me free room and board, which you can't beat. 35 years I did that, Susie, you know? How did pickleball affect the interest in tennis? Well, this generation and the older ones that can't cover a tennis court anymore, they're playing pickleball now, which is, you know, a much smaller court. Um, And they do get injured, too. If you follow the news sometimes, uh, the sports section of the news, they'll say pickleball, a lot of doctors are seeing injuries from seniors that are playing pickleball. Broken ankles, bad knees you know, falling on the court or whatever. So they play until they can't. <laughs> Do you but, play? Uh, no, 
I don't care for pickleball. I didn't grow up with it. It's just tennis is a much more cerebral game and more athletic, and it takes a lot more time to get good at it. But I like the fact that pickleball brings people out to the courts where they have an activity, where they can exercise and be with other people and enjoy their one or two hours that they're playing. But pickleball is the hottest sport in America right now. I could go and get certified if I wanted to. If I wasn't making enough money in tennis, I might do that. But again, my clients have specific times they like. And uh, if I tell them, well, I'm going to be on the pickleball court this morning for three hours, they wouldn't like that. But I, I like the sport. I like the fact that people are playing. I'm all in favor of anything that gets people out of the house and exercising. What's the most challenging weather condition when you're teaching? Uh, wind. Wind. You, you'll talk to any golfer or tennis player. The wind is the biggest factor. It's not the cold so much. It's the wind chill, and it affects the ball. So, you know, whatever the conditions of the weather, go, go out and take advantage of it, you know. <laughs> what are some of the changes you've noticed over the years at the ranch? It's a different crowd now, you know. When you're someplace 40 years a lot of my clients were in their 50s when I came here, or say 60s. They're, they're all gone. And a lot of them, uh, you know, smoked, drank. They didn't get the message. This generation gets it a little more, I think. So I, I can name so many people that are gone because of overuse of smoking and liquor, you know, which is really why I stayed away from that. Plus, my career requires me to be fit. I enjoy fitness. I love physical exercise. It's almost a meditation to me. Like, you know, some people meditate, some people go to church. My church is exercise. I get on that bike and I'm lost, you know. (laughs) My thoughts become clear. I can do a lot of thinking and enjoy the scenery, you know. I'll run up to Prescott sometimes in an afternoon and just hike in the Prescott National Forest get back here before the sun goes down. I like doing stuff like that. I like nature. And Jim did too, Jim Voss. Uh, Jim Voss was a great guy. I, I remember my first couple of days. When Jim came in 1990, I believe, I, I saw this older gentleman in the employee dining room sitting back in the corner. And the uh, eh, guy looks about my age. And I heard he got here on a bicycle from Minnesota. This guy rode his bicycle from Minnesota to Arizona. I said, you know something? I think I'm going to be good friends with this guy. He's, he's eccentric, just like me, you know. He likes biking. And I found out Jim and I had ten things in common. And uh, he became a brother to me. He was like a brother. And uh, I was lucky enough to have his friendship. I think he would tell you the same of me, you know. We just uh, had personalities that were very, very tied together. He was so loyal to his friends. And our friendship just got stronger. We were so comfortable with each other. We could talk about anything. You know, if I said, hey, Jim, let's go out to Kaiser Springs. I bet Burrow Creek's up pretty high. And uh, he'd say, oh, yeah, that's great, Dave. Uh, When when are we going, you know? Were you able to go on any bike excursions together? Yeah, we got up one morning, we decided, I said, Jim, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I'd like to get on my bike one day and make it to the California border, 115 miles. So Jim said, oh, he's game for that. So 
we got on our bikes at 5.30. We figured it was going to take about 14 hours, easily over 12. So we had to leave early enough, right? It, it was still dark. And we got on Route 60, and we made it 50 miles to Salome. It started snowing. So, Jim, I don't know, man. <laughs> we got another 70 miles to go here. So we saw this trucker come in. There's a little grocery store in Salome. We stopped off there. And I asked the trucker, I said, where are you coming from? He's in Los Angeles. How's the weather out in Blythe? Blythe is the border. So he said, oh, it's fine. It's cleared up. I said, Jim, we're good. You know? So we got back on the bikes and it started you know, getting nice. The blue sky came out. And we got out to the end of uh, Route 60 where it comes into Interstate 10. And I was not aware you could use the interstate on a bicycle. But you can. There are times where the road stops at the interstate. There's no other way to go. So you see a sign when you get to Interstate 10. It says, cyclists keep to the right. Duh. (laughs) So Jim says, uh, now Dave, keep way over on the shoulder. These cars are coming up behind us 80 miles an hour. Uh, So we did, you know, and Jim had all kinds of experience. So I'm glad. I wanted to go to the border because I knew he had the experience too. He said, now when you come to exit ramps on an interstate, take the ramp do not try to cross these cars come up so fast so you actually take the ramp cross the street at the top get back on the interstate on the on the other side of the bridge so lo and behold we get through customs there at the colorado river they're customs so these customs agents see us coming in on our bikes and it was no surprise the cyclists do that you know so he said okay fellas you got to get off at the next exit on the interstate so we didn't. We went to the second exit where the restaurant was, and it wasn't a problem. So we, uh, my friend Christine picked us up at Denny's there, and I bought her a steak and paid for the gas and everything. And uh, we hauled the bikes back in Chris's truck. So that, that was a great experience with Jim. And the other time we left, my other great experience with Jim was uh, hiking Grand Canyon. We left at 4, 4 a.m., Drove to Grand Canyon, got on the South Kaibab Trail, hiked all the way down the river, back up the Bright Angel Trail, which is a round trip. We get up to the top, and uh, of course, I got to go back and get my car at the South Kaibab parking lot. I figured I'd jump on one of the shuttle buses. Well, they weren't running, so I had to walk another four miles back to the South Kaibab parking lot and get my car and get back to Bright Angel Lodge. Just about that time, Jim was still coming up the trail. (laughs) I'm a fast hiker. He isn't. But I always tried to get on the trail early enough. I knew it was, even if I was crippled, I could get out of there in four hours. But typically, I could get out in three and a half hours. And I ran down one day with my friend Sandy. We got down. I looked at my watch. It was less than an hour. I, I got down to the river. It's seven miles, so you average about eight minutes a mile going downhill. So it's too bad Jim wasn't here in 1982 when I came. I could have had, you know, eight more years with his friendship, you know. And uh, I I miss Jim a lot, you know. Uh, I don't think people realized how close Jim and I, you know, you're lucky enough to get one or two great friends in life. Well, I had two of them. I had Jim out here and I had my friend Sandy back there who was a tennis pro and he passed away two years ago so in the last two years man i've lost my 
you know, my best friends. What do you think kept Jim coming back to the ranch? I'd, I'd say it was his friendships with everybody. You know, I, I was Jim's best friend, and he considered me his best friend. As a matter of fact, uh, it was an honor, you know, when people say, oh, I met the Bellman up there. He said, you're his best friend. And, and uh, that's so I started calling Jim my best friend, you know, to return the compliment. And what keeps you coming back to the ranch every year? Uh, my clients and my friends. And it's a simple life out here. I like Wickenburg. Um, we have good law enforcement. I don't worry about crime so much. I love the country, the state of Arizona, the Rim Country, Sedona. All these special places are within an hour or two almost, you know. I, I think it was my, my job. I really liked my job. I liked the combination of working in the bar nights. And the, the, all the clients were my friends. I mean, who wouldn't want to make money just hanging out with your friends, you know? And I, and I had a successful clientele list, so why should I start over somewhere else, you know? The heart of my clientele, which was the returning guests every year. I could always count on the Berlin family and all these other families to come in. And uh, I, I knew that the, the homeowners weren't going anywhere. They were there for seven months. So I was drawing business from them, too. I was more worried, Susie, than I would be over busy, overbooked, because there's nothing worse than, you know, you're so busy you can't take care of the clients that made you successful, you know. So that never happened. I always, I always took a house guest. I knew the priority was to take the house guest. They're only here for a week. Make yourself available to them. So I did. I never turned down a lesson. And if, they, if I couldn't get them at 10 o'clock time, I'd skip lunch and get them at 12, you know, whatever it took. I did not want a comment card saying I was at the ranch four days, but I couldn't get in with a tennis pro. That never looks good. And it would, wouldn't look good for me either because I, I like, I'm a people pleaser. I, I didn't want to do that to people. And uh, I thought about hiring an assistant pro. Uh, when I started to get into my 60s, now I'm 74 and I'm still, you know. <laughs> but the business has dropped down to accommodate my my age. <laughs> I can do six hours if I want, or seven, but I don't. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't have to do it, but I will take if a call comes in from the concierge. I will honor that, you know, that call and that person that wants a lesson. You know, it's only fair. Right? Or they're going to shove me out of here like that other old pro that I displaced, right? <laughs> I do it because I love it, you know. It's, it's, it's nice. You, success is, uh, it's hard to define success. Success to me isn't about so much money or how many clients you have or how much you can save. It's about your relationships with, with the people that make you happy, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. Success is complicated, but certainly making a good living adds to it. But uh, if I wasn't happy here, I don't care how much money, if I wasn't happy, I wouldn't be here, you know. I, as a single guy, I can go anywhere. <laughs> One year I was thinking, you know, I've been here long enough. I, I really want to try, and I've had opportunities in Vero Beach, Florida, I have a lot of people in New England, and this is the most emotional I've ever seen anybody, because I remember going up to Jim, I said, Jim, 
I think that's it for me here. It was May, and I said, I, I think I'm going to next year go down to Vero Beach. I want to be near the ocean, and I have some good opportunities there through my contacts. And you know something? Jim came up to me, and he hugged me, and he was crying dry tears. I'd never seen a reaction like that, which shows you how sensitive, loyal Jim was. And he was just sort of sobbing, you know? I said, Jim, it's okay. Oh, I'll come back, Jim. I'll be back at some, some point. I'm not leaving you. It was really touching. I'd never seen a grown man do that. Did that factor in your decision on whether to go? Yes and no, I think. And I, you know, it must have been on a bike ride or something before I left here. I said, you know something, Dave, why start over? You know, you got a free room and board here. You've made all these friends. You have your clients. Uh, think on it. Don't make any rash decisions. You enjoy the trip out here in the car. You can stop off and see your Civil War battlefields and stuff like that. And Sandy always followed me, too. So I had company on the road. There's so many factors in life that puts you in that seat and me in this seat at this moment in time. You just never know when life's going to take you, you know. Were there any guests that made an impression on you? You know, I'm always uh, honored when uh, I become friends with clients that are very powerful, rich people. They take lessons from me. They take the time to get to know me and uh, spend a little extra time after the lesson just talking about life. They, they don't have to pay any attention to me, you know. You know, when I was bartending, I'd go up to some very important people, and I, I knew their resumes. They'd get up out of their chair, Dave, so good to see you again. Man, that is nice, you know. Uh, it just shows you uh, what human beings they are. But the, the thing is, as much as I love the guests, I love the staff, too. You can't work in this business if you can't get along with the staff and want to get along with them and want to befriend them. So I really enjoy working around uh, the staff, and I don't care what their job is. I wash dishes, so I can relate to that. That was my first job. I can relate to what the waiters are doing, and I would clean rooms to start the season off. So I know the housekeepers. We, we called the maids in those days. You know? I thought that was very derogatory. So I'm glad they, it's now I'm an executive housekeeper. All the titles have been changed. But the people remain the same. And I love the people. You know, I've been in the business over 50 years in the hotel business. And it's been an honor to do this. I don't know where else I could have been successful. Not in an office. I could never have had an office job. What's the vision for your future? Well, to, to live till I'm 100. That's the vision I have. I watched my grandmother roar through 100. 105, 106, well, she went all the way to 110, and she took good care of herself, uh, vegetarian for the most part, but ate fish. And so I, I want to be around a long time because I, I like it down here, you know. <laughs> There's no hurry to get down there or get up there. <laughs> what do you think the legacy of the ranch is? That's a good question. I, I think it's a... It's one of those special places that has withstood the test of time, hasn't it? A lot of these older places that people really enjoy going to because it doesn't change. That's where their friends are going, right? They don't 
try to uh, change too much. And I think what helped was Rusty having grew up at the ranch. His father started it. So there was a sense of being comfortable. When you come to the ranch, you can leave all your troubles behind. It's just comfortable to come back to Los Caballeros because it's a special place. I don't think there are a lot of places like this left. They get bulldozed and other things go up, you know. What are your thoughts on the future of the ranch? Well, I, I like the three owners. I've known them for years. I waited on Sandy Cutler's family. I waited on his parents. Uh, I played ten- tennis with Sandy and his son, Billy. So, and Sandy, by the way, is a very good tennis player. But uh, I've got the highest respect for Sandy. And uh, the Kemper's uh, summer home was in my hometown in Cape Cod, so I've known them a long time. And I just love Christine. Isn't she great? Yeah. So, oh, Dave, you're a treasure. I, I wouldn't call me a treasure yet. I'm not, you know, I haven't been around that long. And Lanny Martin, I can remember doing a job for Lanny. He asked me to work a private party for him. That's another thing I did, private parties. And I, I would not turn down the homeowners. Serving as a bartender? Yeah, a yeah. So, and Joe did a lot of that. And, and I would never turn them down. I mean, if they asked me to come and do their private party, that, that shows respect for me. You know, I'm honored to do it if I had the night off. You know? So I went over to Lanny's house and I said, okay, Lanny, where do you want the bar set up? He said, Dave, before you do anything, let me show you the house. Isn't that nice? You know, what a, what a guy, Lanny Martin. And I would wait on him and Sharon in the bar. And I'd always have a conversation uh, with Lanny and Sharon. They're just really, all, all I can say is they're great Midwestern people, you know, Midwestern values, shake your hand. They give back. Most of these people give back a lot. How has 40-year career at the ranch influenced you? How has it changed you? There's a, there's a comfort zone you get in. Uh, I feel comfortable in my job, and I like meeting the new employees, the ones that are just starting out. I'll have conversations with them and uh, mention that, well, this is my 41st year here. And they go like that, you know. And I was just passing through town, Susie, when I came here. This was a four-month gig, and I was out of here. What are some funny stories out on the court? Well, I'd have to think about that for a while. Did you teach any children? Always. People ask me, who do you teach, Dave? Uh, Well, I teach them from four years old to 94. I've had 90-year-old clients. uh, And I had Arnie Berlin was well into his high 80s before he stopped playing tennis with me. So how many generations of the Berlin family did you teach? Well, I taught Arnie and Ann. And then their kids came along, and when they were maybe 14 or 15, I taught them. Now I was teaching Martha's kids. So what's that, three generations of Berlins? It's a long time, 41 years. A lot happens in 41 years, you know. Why do you think families keep returning to the ranch year after year? Oh, it's the memories. Definitely the memories, you know. So many of those kids have special memories and when they grow up, they want to give their kids those same special memories. The, the cookouts, the horseback rides, uh, getting your boots branded. You know, it's, it's all that stuff. It, they want to give them a Western experience, I think. You know, it's, it's pretty special, the ranch. I think uh, people just kind of fall in love with it. And you add the saguaro cactus and the beautiful desert flowers, and and we can see the mountains from here, you know? 
that's one thing I considered when I was going to go to Florida. Where are the mountains, you know? <laughs> Where are the red rocks of Sedona? It, it, Florida's, it's all the same, you know? So I said, you know, I think, I think the West has kind of gotten in my blood. So I think I'll just stay out of here in the West. Are there any famous guests that you remember? Yeah, uh, Joan Rivers used to come here. Uh, who else was here? Did she ever play tennis? No, no. Uh, she, she came to the ranch? She came to the ranch. Let's see, there was, a, there was a famous actress that was here. I forget her last name. And she took a tennis lesson from me. And she had a famous sister, Redgrave, uh, Vanessa. But I did have, um, this guy was the top musician in Nashville. Nashville Musician of the Year. John, can't remember his last name, but he's married to Johnny Cash's daughter. Uh, what's her name? Roseanne Cash. And she got like five Grammys that one year. And I gave him a lesson. Another pretty good tennis player, but he was getting too close to the ball on his forehand. So I said, John, you got to get out of the ring of fire there, man. Step aside. And she was watching our lesson and she smiled at me. <laughs> John Leventhal. That's it, John Leventhal. He plays about six different instruments, and he's playing with her that night at the uh, Web Center. I think it's just the two of them. What does the ranch mean to you? Oh, it means it means I had a happy career. That's what it means, I think. I had somewhere to go that I could make a living and be, and be happy. Because the ranch just gave me happiness, you know? And it was a combination of my job and the people. And... The ranch means so much to me and, and uh, the staff. My other track record was that I didn't have one sick day outside of that appendix. 41 years, not a sick day. You need an award for that. Well, it's because I uh, enjoy exercise. Well, thank you, Dave, for sitting down with me and sharing your stories. Well, thanks for listening to my bullshit. <laughs> They're all true stories. <laughs> This concludes another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. You've heard from a cast of characters who have had an influential role at the ranch over the years. And one of those characters was a very special employee named Jim Voss. Jim was on my list of people to interview, but unfortunately we never found the right time to sit down and chat before he passed away last year. Jim was loved by many. He was a staple at the ranch, a familiar face that stood outside the main lodge, greeting guests with his cordial smile and easygoing demeanor. To say he is missed is an understatement. To say he made a lasting impression at the ranch somehow doesn't seem enough. This episode is dedicated to Jim. He was a delight to work with and a friend to many. He shared with me some of his stories about riding his bicycle cross country on his trek to the ranch for another season. Stories that amazed and inspired me. Stories I had hoped to share with you from the bellmen from the Midwest who made everyone feel like they were home. Thank you, Jim, for all the service you gave to the ranch, for the memories to so many guests, and for reminding me not to wait another day because you never know when the story might end.